This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art, because doing good work takes time. I'm a very sleepy Chris Show today. <laughs> and I'm Stephen Caradini, and I'm going to bring the energy. We're so, going to balance each other out. That's of. right. I've had some caffeine today, and Chris is had a rough day. <laughs> Just slotted through one of those patches at work. That's how it goes sometimes. And failing to record his other podcast. So RIP last episode. But this one's working fine, so it's going to get recorded. (laughs) And uh, we're going to talk about some stuff today. Specifically, some stuff. stuff. We're always going to talk about some stuff. But today, (laughs) we're going to talk about what happens when a community's technological use goes awry? And the model for this at the moment is the whole Silicon Valley culture. And you might say to yourself, wow, that seems fairly wide ranging and sort of lacking in precision. But wait, we have the precision when it comes to this. <laughs> you just don't understand it yet. So, also, it's winning slowly. We're allowed to be wide, make wide-sweeping pronouncements if we want. That's true. <laughs> but I will say that there's actually a, a more specific fine point than you might imagine uh, by us saying, hey, all of Silicon <laughs> Valley is broken. So the deal with this, building on episodes that we've had this season and basically the first five seasons of this podcast, what we're going to be talking about today is how to avoid, mitigate, change, adapt, whatever. Resist. Resist, if you so choose. future. Reject. That was the word. Told you people, I'm tired. (laughs) I got to resist instead of reject. Resist, reject. All of that, when it comes down to large groups of people that technologically are doing things that aren't good for other groups of people or people individually. So there are about 50,000 angles in on this that you can take. The one that's one that's happening right now and continues to happen is Uber and all of their permutations of horrible ethics, uh, some of them being overtly bad and some of them being covertly bad. Uber wishes that all of them were still covertly bad. But some of them being slightly acceptable – in Silicon Valley culture, some of them being totally acceptable in Silicon Valley culture. There's also Facebook, which is currently in the throes of trying to avoid regulation. There's any number of scandals that we've talked about in various seasons that have to do with gender, that have to do with sexual harassment, that have to do with uh pay inequity that have to do with all sorts of things that make it difficult for people who aren't white men to succeed in Silicon Valley. So yeah, you can just keep going. I'm, I'm not gonna, <laughs> gonna keep railing on this, but there's a lot of ways that you can tell. Go listen to season three when we went after Amazon all season all for season. this. All season. But all that to say that there's clearly something gone wrong with Silicon Valley and the way that they use technology as a means to increase power and increase money, as a way that they use the corporation itself as a type of technology to achieve those ends, as the way that they have no scruples of making the technologies that they create be bad for other people, which is partially how Facebook got into this mess in that they don't care about privacy settings really at all. 
it sort of yeah. goes against how they make money. Connecting the world, man. I mean, you can connect the world, but in previous in previous eras, the world had to pick up the phone. <laughs> you could write a letter. Or, or write a letter. I'm just saying, like, previous eras, <laughs> if you called someone on the telephone, they had to pick up. You didn't just, like, get to observe them in their house. Like, yeah. So one of the things I think is worth teasing out in this is what holds all of that together? Because there are a lot of different things Stephen just pointed to, a lot of things we've talked about over the last few years, a lot of scandals, a lot of things that have gone wrong in Silicon Valley. And Silicon Valley itself seems to be aware to some degree that they have problems, that at a minimum they have PR problems, but perhaps more astutely. I hope that they're aware. <laughs> yeah. that- Some of them do genuinely seem to be aware that they have legitimate ethical problems, that when you see early investors and board members from Facebook saying, I don't know that Facebook is a net good. I'm concerned about how it affects our kids. Now that I'm not 25, but I'm, you know, 35 with kids, I'm aware of these things, they suddenly say. Maybe they should have some old people in their companies. (laughs) Hmm? Hmm? Ageism Hmm. is not what this episode is about, Stephen. It's a Hmm. good episode for another time. Hmm. Uh, When you have Silicon Valley starting a center for humane technology, when (laughs) you have... (laughs) all of these kinds of things going, even the insiders are clearly starting to be aware that some things have gone wrong. And we could we could stick at that high level, but you know us. That's not really how we tend to go at it. What, at the end of the day, underlies these kinds of problems? What is it that has made Silicon Valley so susceptible to going off the rails? The title of this episode, we'll just drop it out there in the middle of the episode, is a play on Facebook's dumb old motto. They used to say, move fast and break things, because that was the way to succeed as as a startup in their view. And fundamentally, that's wrong. And I'm not even going to say, you might think that's wrong, or we think that's wrong. No, it's just wrong. All right, thanks for listening to Winning Slowly this week. This has been uh, Winning Slowly, (laughs) all six seasons of it. We move slowly. Yeah. We might say we move slowly and fix things and build things. That's right. The the fundamental flaw that we see in most of the disruption culture in Silicon Valley is, well, what it says on the tin in some ways. The mentality is tear down what exists for the sake of profit. And those two things, hand in hand, are the fundamental endemic problems with Silicon Valley culture as we see it. There is a willingness to just break stuff as quickly as possible because there is apparent profit to be had. I say apparent because for all that there are a few Silicon Valley unicorns that are genuinely making absurd amounts of money, there are also a lot that are just one more social network that's not famously twitter can't make money and doesn't really know how to make Seriously. money Seriously, it might someday make money that's like their whole pitch that's literally <laughs> their pitch is we might someday make money have you been to a business school recently <laughs> anyway when we look at those two things in combination it starts to become a lot clearer how things are so broken and the first one i want to take a little detour and talk about 
one of the fundamental problems in a disruption approach to technology, in a tear it down, break things approach to technological innovation. The reality is that as you build new things, you do sometimes come up to a fence, shall we say. And you might look at the fence and say, why is this here? And there's a well-known point at this point in philosophy called Chesterton's Fence. G.K. Chesterton, 100 years ago, noted that if you come to a fence and you say, I can't see any reason at all for this to be here, you have no business tearing it down because you don't understand why it was there in the first place. And the fundamental challenge that confronts any of us is understanding why existing structures exist. Even if we think they're dumb, perhaps especially if we think they're dumb, there's probably a reason that someone built them. Now, that may be an out-of-date reason. It may no longer hold. It may indeed have been a wrong reason. But when you come to a fence and say, I don't see why this is here, going to kick it down, you're doing it wrong. Stop. So what's... So I think that the urge to disrupt things is not necessarily wrong in itself. I think you're saying that as well. Yep. And I also am am a, a little bit more sort of sympathetic towards people who want to make things better. I work in a university and there are yes. certain ways that this university functions basically the same as it did 300 years ago. And I'm at one of the universities that's renowned as an innovator in attempting to change the university structure. So there are definitely times when I look at something and say, I don't know why that exists, but literally no one else does either. <laughs> There's right. literally no reason that this thing is is existent that is known to anyone at this point. It's just hidebound. Right. Sometimes you end up in a situation where you have a fence that's there because it's been there for a long time and no right. one it and it doesn't actually that's why I said a moment ago. Sometimes you you look at that and you you study the situation as well as you can and you say, Yeah, this fence doesn't need to be here anymore. Right. But you should ask that question first. You should you start should. by saying, is there a reason that this fence is here? Might I have missed something? Might I have missed something? And I do think that that's important. But I think more often than uh, perhaps you might think that when you see something, you there there are ways to improve it and fix it. Maybe that don't involve entirely tearing down the fence, but <laughs> maybe you could repair the fence. Maybe you could add a gate to the fence. Maybe lots of things. Yeah. Maybe you could do lots of things, but I'm generally sympathetic towards the, the mindset that the world has problems and we need to fix them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those methods are less than gentle. Now the problem for me is not that people want to disrupt things and that sometimes people's old code gets thrown out when it was still useful. The thing that bothers me more is the motivation for which people want to disrupt things because there's a difference between, look, I really want to solve cancer because I hate cancer <laughs> and I really want to solve cancer because I will become a billionaire. Both of those things, if true, are totally 
feasible together. Like, if you want to defeat cancer because it's cancer and you also do it, you could potentially become a billionaire or you could just open source it like we did with polio and Salk and all of this stuff where somebody was like, no, we will let this go free into the world. And that might be a way of doing it too. I'm actually not opposed to either of those methods if your underlying goal is let's beat cancer. Because if you do it that way, you're going to do things in ways that actually try to defeat cancer in specific and replicatable ways as opposed to cutting corners and trying to make the most profit possible which is not going to produce the same types of things, procedures, products, whatever, as somebody who's only trying to get there to be a billionaire. Right. I think what I would what I would say to clarify perhaps the difference or perhaps the agreement between us is that when I talk about disruption culture in this way, I'm talking precisely about the kick it down because there's money to be had on the other side and I can't I'm not even curious whether there's a reason for the existence of this thing. I'm not even curious whether there might be a good because I see money on the other side of the fence. So kick it down. And I think, I think that's a, a, a fairly other than, <laughs> so I, one, there definitely are companies that are like that. They exist. Maybe even Uber is one of them, but I think a lot more companies move fast and break things that, for instance, Facebook didn't have a business plan for the first few years of its existence. It just was a thing. Like they just wanted to make a thing. Twitter, in all effect, really still doesn't have a business plan. It's just a thing. And like they broke things for sure because they were moving <laughs> fast. And I don't know. It's I, I, I'm a little bit more sympathetic to like let's do this. Like I'm a get down and do it sort of thing. But to me, the motivations count more than perhaps the well, let's say that I have I have done things and then asked for forgiveness later. <laughs> I have done that. That is a thing I have done. And so, I think I would say that I think the fence kicking downage and the reasons why you kick it down both matter. Maybe it was a good fence. Maybe that's it needed fair. to be there. Yeah. But I I think that the the reasons, the contours here, like, I I think that, one, you can paint a sort of absurd picture of a culture if you just take the move fast and break things. And I do think that there are people within Silicon Valley that genuinely want to do well. But I, I also think that given the incentives of the whole of Silicon Valley and given the ways that people are suggesting the uses of technology – and mass uh, right. as as a overarching structure that monetizes the lack of privacy, which is a, a good chunk of the technologies that are out there <laughs> right story. now. No matter if your ultimate end is good, no matter if your uh, the, the I, I'm just saying that you can have uh, a good product that doesn't even break anything that fixes something that has bad motivations and that product is still potentially dangerous, more mm -hmm. dangerous than something that broke some things but had the right motivations. I see what you're saying. I'm not totally sure I agree. Our wives are going to love this episode. Good. <laughs> what? Because I don't mind the 
And this can also be extrapolated into the the ends justify the means. And I'm not right. exactly saying that. What I'm saying is that in the realm of what you have to do to get something done, I'm okay with you know a little bit of trampling on some norms, and I'm okay with a little bit of trying something new that may have bad results. Although we've talked about before, like you want to try to minimize those as much as possible. You want to do smart things. But when you're working out on the edge, there's always going to be some risk. And I'm I'm more willing to take those risks and say our motives here are good than to say, I don't know, the 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 line is farther over for me. I think maybe the way I would say it to run with Chesterton's fence slightly longer is give him back his fence. <laughs> I think that where I'm sympathetic to you, I would say the way to do it is to carefully climb over the fence, aware that there might be monsters on the other side, That's fair. rather than knocking down the fence and letting all the monsters come in. <laughs> okay, I I can I can accept that formulation. <laughs> I, I I I can I can get with that, <laughs> but I do think I do think that. While we're critiquing them, I don't want to, A, create a caricature of them, although yeah, they've okay. tried very hard to make a caricature of themselves. <laughs> uh, but B, acknowledge that you know I myself have tried to do things and th- I don't have millions of dollars of VC money backing me. <laughs> um, but the logic of, of certain ways of acting, particularly out of good motivations, is – to try to get things done. Right. And so that's attention because the more that you get expedient, right? The more that you say, we're going to go over these barriers so that we can get stuff done, then you end up being Uber. So there's a line. I acknowledge there's a line. You can't take (laughs) my argument to its logical extension because then I'm not critiquing it at all. I'm just espousing it and defending it, which I'm totally (laughs) not. But I'm saying that the corrective here is possible without totally taking apart the like we want to get stuff done quickly Mm -hmm. even if there's a there's definitely a variance of what quickly means given that this is winning slowly (laughs) yeah one of the things that we want to turn to here is why it is that even as steven mentioned a minute ago even the people who genuinely are trying to do good things in Silicon Valley, and even those who often are trying to do good things for the right reasons, can end up in such a bad spot. Yeah. And, well, it's capitalism. <laughs> now, it's, Oh, it's just that, huh? <laughs> no, I, I certainly oversimplify here. But there's a sense in which I'm pointing at the right thing. And we're... Where we see a lot of these flaws come in, where a lot of the good gets corrupted is because on the other side of that fence is not like a $10 bill, but $10 billion. And it's It's really hard not to tear down the fence when there's $10 billion. Even if you're like, no, I came here to build this fence. And you're like, but there's $10 billion on the other side of it. Right. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Indeed. And the warning not to desire to become rich that the Bible offers us seems to us to be very well grounded mm-hmm. in the experience we have of reality, right? 
when we look at what happens when the desire to become rich starts to trump other things, and it's very difficult for it not to, when you're having bazillions of dollars waved in front of your face all the time, just give up a little of your user's privacy. Here's all the money. And so this is where the beginning of the episode started, which is that the whole setup of Silicon Valley, which is not unique in the history of capitalism, but the whole setup of Silicon Valley is, to pull some from seasons four and five, a perverse incentive. It incentivizes you to do things that you might not otherwise do if you didn't have a giant pile of money sitting over there. So part of the problem that we see is that the use of technology in this way as the foundation of companies to make a bunch of money is affecting lots of other communities in negative ways. This is the problem that we are most interested in on this episode, besides the fact that we just talked for like 20 minutes about the thing leading up to the thing. But uh, (laughs) it was a good argument. It was a good argument. The thing that we're most interested in is why and how do you resist this sort of use of technology, the widest scale possible, where you're saying this clearly has gone awry, this whole area of our culture, this whole section of our economy is clearly broken and it is breaking things for this other group of people where this other group of people is approximately a quarter to a third of the world that's online Yeah, in significant mm-hmm. social media using ways. There's 2 billion some odd users of Facebook, et cetera, and then a billion or 2 billion users of uh, Chinese social media as well, so – maybe half the world even is affected by social media. That's a lot. It's a lot of people. And where you can start to see these kinds of pressures very clearly, look at any public company and look at how they have to structure their financial reporting. It's quarterly earnings calls. And they're explicitly set in nearly every case as designed to maximize the profits of their shareholders. And so deeply ingrained is this in Silicon Valley culture and in equally importantly here, because it often doesn't get pointed out when we talk about the foibles of Silicon Valley, but it's behind many of the foibles of Silicon Valley, Wall Street culture. Yeah. When a company rarely, but occasionally does say, no, we're not going to do that because it would be bad for our customers or it would be bad for the environment or it would be bad for insert thing here that's an ethical consideration. Kickstarter and Patagonia are two examples of this. Yep. And occasionally you'll hear Tim Cook make this move on earnings calls with Apple to his credit. There are lots of things I wish Apple did differently and better in this regard, but he's the only CEO of a company that size I can think of ever having done that. Any of these kinds of companies that are publicly traded companies that say, look, if you want to be in a company that's purely maximizing profit, go somewhere else. That's not what we're doing. In some ways, Apple's one of the only companies its size that can do that because they've got absurd piles of money. And if everybody sold Apple stock, Apple would be like, well, so... So I actually don't like the Apple example because they're sort of the the person who can be like, you know what? You don't need 10 cars. You should only buy one when they have a garage of 30, right? Like they've already reaped all the benefits of capitalism. And in the 
the 80s when they were making key decisions about their own architecture, they did some really, really unethical things that made them the world leader in ethics. So I don't like the Apple example here. (laughs) I would push back hard on that because I think that says that companies can't learn and grow or that because you have a pile of money, you're recognizing you have a responsibility to do the right thing with that somehow is trumped by prior bad behavior. And that's not right. We should say if Uber turns around and gets their act together and becomes a model of upstanding citizenship in the tech ecosystem and in the world at large, we should applaud that, not not hold against them all their prior wrongs. I agree with that. But I think, and the reason I say that is because It's easy to say you shouldn't do this when you already did it. The specific times I'm pointing to are their stance on things like the environment, where they've taken flack for aiming for green energy because it costs more and is not as profit effective. That's that's fair. If you're in in the argument that we're having right now about the moves that they are making to be less profit effective in terms of pure profit – that's true. They do those sorts of things. Right. And my, my point is not to hold, as I said at the outset, there are lots of things I wish Apple did better. Right. My point is simply that it's notable when they even do that yeah. because it's so rare. And, I think and so that's my point true. was not to raise an Apple is good, Apple is bad argument, but that the entire system is set up in such a way that it's mostly only smaller companies that are founded from the outset with those things in mind, or the very rare occasional, we have all the money in the world and we don't care, so we can just kind of thumb our noses at Wall Street companies. Everybody in the middle is so deeply incentivized by the Wall Street approach That's what and I'm the quarterly about. profits, etc. That's what I'm saying. There is a great deal of difficulty right. in that middle ground. Right. To so, stand your ground and say, no, we're going to do the right thing, even though it's less profitable. Right. And so that middle ground company is why I don't like the Apple example, because like everybody would be like, yeah, I mean, it'd be easy to go green energy and lose a little bit of money if you were already like had giant vaults of Scrooge McDuck level money. <laughs> like that's I mean, it takes corporate fortitude, but not as much as if it did you were a smaller company that was on the line and you were trying to race to get to an IPO because you were trying to get out before the whole company falls apart. You know, those sorts of of situations, which are very common, um, are the situations where the perverse incentives are greater than any possible, in my opinion, way to get them to stop doing them. Right. There's there's so much money to be made that it it seems from the inside, which is my argument, that you can't really not do it. To be a part of Silicon Valley is to do this, to race towards an IPO. And there are other exceptions, which is mm-hmm. good. We're not making a caricature here. But that's my overarching concern with the most move slowly and fix things mantra is that the whole setup of Silicon Valley culture is so that you would move fast and break things. And to have the ability to move slow and fix things, you would need to change the entire structure of the culture and you would need to bring in another community to do that. You would have to have someone outside that community come in and say, look, 
y'all need to slow down. What's up? Mic drop. (laughs) And to be very clear, in all of that, you're making the same point I was trying to make by raising Apple, precisely because most people don't have, as you said, Scrooge McDuck piles of money. So then we have that last question, which is, what community can do that? And you might say, well, antitrust, but antitrust in some ways is a op- it's an option of last resort. It's the last thing you can do when all the other communities have failed. It's also, and this is perhaps the real trick with it, it's not capable of breaking up Wall Street because Wall Street isn't one company. You could perhaps regulate certain kinds of things in Wall Street. You could change the game. You could say that a a public corporation doesn't get to be set up to maximize shareholder revenue only. You could say that all public corporations have to be public benefit corporations, like certain companies have chosen to incorporate themselves as. But again, at that point, in some sense, you've already lost because the government is a blunt instrument. And... It's often very difficult, especially at the level of a national government, to apply appropriate amounts of nuance or measured approaches. It's necessary sometimes, but when you when you get to the point where that's your only option, you're in a bad spot. It's much better if we can figure out means to apply pressure to Wall Street and not just to Silicon Valley, but to Wall Street itself, to the financial incentives that drive things there. And to remember that the financial incentives that have misled Silicon Valley have also misled the banking industry in the mid-2000s and have misled lots of industries. The oil industry multiple times. Right. The deep problem here remains the maximization of profit at all human costs. Right. And I think that there are ways that you can, instead of regulating the companies to not be able to make money, which seems sort of impossible, as you mentioned, (laughs) there are ways of striking at particular elements of how they make money. So if you're going to stop rampant privacy invasions, then something like the EU's uh, GDPR is something that you can say, hey, this sort of multinational corporation level, uh, well, it's not a corporate, well, this sort of multinational organization wants to protect individual people, although en masse, by saying this particular type of thing that you use to make money is not a thing that you can do. And you need to give people the, the way to opt out. Just cutting down on some of the bad ways that people draw logical extensions of the idea of advertising would potentially cause some people to not go as far towards the move fast and break things if there's a smaller amount of money to be achieved at that end. So it's not necessarily saying you can't make money. It is through other means, policy, Uh, being one of them, through other means, lessening the amounts of money that there are to be made. One of the other options that is difficult to leverage effectively and is also something of a blunt instrument is the good old boycott. When enough people choose not to do things, it matters. But at the scale that something like Facebook is at, you have to have a much larger 
number of people boycotting than the hashtag right. delete Facebook movement got anywhere close to. Right. Facebook didn't even blink at the change from hashtag delete Facebook. And it would have taken an order of magnitude more yes. for them to even begin to feel it and a couple orders of magnitude more for it to actually matter to them. And that's one of the things that concerns us about some of the scale here and that does make regulation and antitrust in a real sense possible necessities here because you're dealing with companies, as Stephen mentioned, a third of the world's population uses Facebook to some extent or another. How do you solve that? Like, how do I organize with a third of the world's population right. to make Facebook a quarter or a tenth of a third of the world's population right. to make the world do something? We're at that point, you're talking the population of the United States. Yeah. That's still operating on such massive scale that at that point, the scale itself is dehumanizing and it becomes very, very difficult for communities to affect the whole. All the communities can generally do is withdraw and themselves reject it. Although organizations that band together can affect policy change. So if policy is the vehicle here, then there are groups of people that can get together. This is the whole point of several episodes of our structure agency episode, which is to say that at great scale requires being met with great scale. So right. you would have to get large coalitions of people together to go and demand policy changes if policy is where you want to go. If you want boycotts, that's the whole point of effective boycotting is getting the largest number of people together, the, the large amount of mass action. And so that's our specific takeaway for this episode is that if you're looking to make mass changes to community use of technology, you're going to need a mass amount of people to meet that sort of that sort of scale. You're going to need right. to fight scale with scale. And there's a lot of situations that we're going to talk about later in the season where you can't fight scale with scale. You're going to be on a small scale trying to fight a big scale. Or you're going to be big scale that doesn't have the ability to respond nimbly to a small scale resistance or to a small scale technology that we want to resist. Right. So it's not a perfect solution, but it is our, our effort here. Right. We also have to be willing to say that even if we don't win at the total scale, communities nonetheless should continue to make the kinds of rejecting moves that are necessary, even if they can't get every other community on board. Right. Slow but consistent, sustained rejection has right. value and merit and can grow. Right. It can be a witness to the rest of the, the watching world of in the ways that the Amish continue to be a witness of alternative approaches to life. Right. And Maybe we're going to be the Amish equivalent of the Amish when it comes to social media. I don't know. There you know. go. There you go. But there's also things like the abolition movement, which started right. very small and got larger over time and was able to press issues. And that happened. That was a very drastic sort of situation in the United States, but was a less drastic thing in in, in Britain. In England. Yep. England, yes. So there are ways that Fighting scale with scale can take a while, but it can, if that's the goal that people are seeking, take on big systems. 
And that's what we're suggesting for Silicon Valley is that there need to be a coalition of concerned people come together around some idea. How we get to that idea is, again, a uh, subject for a later episode, but they need to come together around certain ideas and be able to adequately, at bare minimum, but hopefully eloquently, convey those to whatever population that they're seeking to influence, whether it's a state level uh, or a national level or even a supranational level like the EU. Dear listeners, when Stephen and I planned this episode, we thought, yeah, we can totally get this one under 30 minutes, even though we've been hitting like 34 or 35. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I mean, we've talked about this a lot, so it shouldn't be that hard to hit. I mean, come on. And so now we got a long one. (laughs) But thank you for listening anyway. Uh, The song for this episode, as always procured by Steven and his mad connections in the music industry, was Tamu by I Am Sonic Rain. Thanks to all the people who support us on Patreon. Andrew Fellows and Kurt Klassen in, in particular, who are at that level on Patreon. That's right. Thanks to them. If you would like to support us on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash winning slowly or if you want to give directly you can go to cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly <laughs> and you can do that thing if you want to follow us on twitter steven is at s caradini i'm at chris kreichu and the show is at winning slowly we both tweet about a lot of things that don't have anything to do with the show but we do also tweet things that do have to do with the show sometimes it's true And the Winning Slowly Twitter account mostly tweets episodes, but it also does occasionally retweet people like Shannon Valor or LM Sakasas or others. I just got your book, Shannon Valor. I'm super excited. (laughs) Uh, As always, thanks for listening. Probably the next one will be shorter. Probably. Hopefully. Hopefully. (laughs) Hello at winningslowly.org. Email us. Oh, we didn't talk about it, but we got an awesome email from Eric. Thanks, Eric. It was great. That's great. It may come up on future episodes. Yeah, it was specifically about the ethics of reshaping the earth. Think about that, people. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Start the recording. Winning slowly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to bring the energy on this one because you're not. That may or may not be true. (laughs) I can neither confirm nor deny that I have no energy right now. Because I have no energy for confirmations or denials. This is winning slowly. Very Very slowly. Slowly. I'm Chris Kreitjo. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) Doing good work. Takes a lot. I'm too I'm tired. Out. I'm, I'm done. too tired. I'm, sorry, guys. I'm going home now. I'm already at home. I have a home tired. office. I'm going upstairs to sleep on my bed now. <laughs> I can't even walk up the stairs. I'm just going to sleep on the floor of my office. It's fine. I'll see you in an hour. Uh, pretty much. <laughs> All right. I'm ready. The the I'm getting really animated about this. Yeah, good episode, you've got to stay guys. On your mic more. <laughs> Good. I, I know. I'm I'm wavering around my microphone because I'm so excited about this. <laughs> <laughs>